0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, this is Earth Eats. Speaking directly to Black women
1: and wanting Black women to know that their bodies are not the problem. The way that our bodies are treated and problematized and pathologized, we're often taught that it's our fault, that it's our problem to fix, or we just need to love our
0: bodies out of societal oppression. This week on the show, a conversation with dietitian and author Jessica Wilson about her book, It's Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies. Her book challenges us to rethink the politics of body positivity by centering the bodies of Black women in our discussions about food, weight, health, and wellness. That conversation's just ahead. Stay with us. The American Academy of Pediatrics, released in February of 2023, new guidelines for healthcare providers for addressing childhood obesity. The guidelines include aggressive interventions for controlling weight in children as young as 2 years old through adolescence. There's been a great deal of discussion over the past 10 or 15 years about the dangers of obesity. There's been less information about the health risks caused by restrictive diets and eating disorders and about the damaging effects of weight stigma. I wanted to have a conversation about the complexities surrounding weight, diet culture, and about the racialized roots of our collective obsession with thin bodies. So I invited Jessica Wilson to Earth Eats. She's a dietitian, consultant, and storyteller, and she's the author of It's Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies, Released in February of 2023. I started by asking Jessica to tell the story of how she ended up in the field of dietetics. It starts back
1: when I was four years old. I was a kid who was at the top of the growth curve. And, you know, as a kid, that seems like winning. But... That was too big for folks in the medical field, and they really wanted me to have a smaller body. So at age six, I was sent to a dietician, and I was told to eat less and exercise more as a six-year-old. And I don't remember much of it. All I remember is like being hyper-focused on my food and body through childhood and then less so, in high school but still like those memories imprinted and when somebody was going through the list of professions that I could have dietitian was one of them it's like I know what that is sure I'll be I'll be that and then through undergrad I was definitely the only black student in my program uh, my dietetic program I was the only black person in my internship my dietetic internship and then also in grad school, to be perfectly honest. And yeah, it's wild. And then I got into working with eating disorders because I got a job at a health center. And I had not gone into the field to work with people who didn't eat food, right? I wanted to work with people who (laughs) ate food. And then all of a sudden, I'm working with people who are eating food. And they taught us nothing about eating disorders in school. They thought it was only a therapist thing. And so it was like a very, very... deep learning curve. I was probably not great at it, unfortunately, for my patients for the first couple of years. Black dietitians are like three percent ish of the field, but they were not in California. <laughs> I didn't know I didn't know another black dietitian personally until 2020.
0: You are the author of It's Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies. Could you start by telling us about what brought you to write this book?
1: Sure, there's two answers to that. The first one is I didn't want to write the book. I said no many times to the editor who asked me to write it. And so in that process, I was talking to a friend of mine and the pros and cons were I could reach more people than I do on my one-on-one practice, right? So one-on-one stuff is great, but if I write a book, I will be able to reach more people, more clinicians who are then talking to their patients about the same thing. So that was how I decided to write the book and reach more than just that one-on-one
0: relationship. What was your goal in putting this out there?
1: It's a great question. It's Multifaceted. So one was speaking directly to Black women and wanting Black women to know that their bodies are not the problem. The way that our bodies are treated and problematized and pathologized by the medical field, by society, you know, we're often taught that it's our fault, that it's our problem to fix, or we just need to love our bodies out of societal oppression. But I wrote the book for us to recognize that. These influences are centuries in the making. Even in the medical fields, it's designed to be a racist field in the first place. So that was one. And then for clinicians, for sure, to be able to care for and treat their clients clinically in a way that was culturally relevant.
0: Personal narratives are woven throughout the book and that includes your own stories, stories of some well-known public figures, and also the stories of people that you've worked with in your practice. And these stories allow you to illustrate the issues that you're identifying in, in the book. And in the introduction, you talk about a client who you call Mia, and her story in a way for me was unexpected it just in some of the details and you just do so much work in that section to bring forward many of the problems that you're addressing in the book and I was wondering if we could just talk about her story for a moment sure her story kind of starts out with her the term that you use is the pathologizing of bodies and seeing seeing your body as a risk factor that was something that happened to her and it caused her to go on a diet to lose a lot of weight and start exercising excessively and then she had success with weight loss. And then she she came to you and what what did she present when she came to you?
1: First when she came in she was just looking for supplements. So she had gone to her new doctor after the previous doctor had given her the directive to lose weight. The newer doctor was curious about, you know, Mia's health generally and so did some lab tests and found that her lab work was showing signs of malnutrition, and so she came to me after getting that information and figured it was just something that supplements could cure. Um, Her hair had been falling out and all she needed from me was a list of recommendations for supplements, and that would cure the malnutrition. There had to be like a fruit or vegetable that she wasn't getting enough of, and that fruits and vegetables will not solve starvation restriction. So
0: Yeah, that was
1: the only thing that she was interested in.
0: So many things come up in that one story, issues of the way that wellness gets sort of equated with purity and morality. Could you talk about that?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Mia was on her wellness journey, right? It was about, you know, it wasn't about weight loss. It was for her. It was about just being really like Better and being accepted into an all white grad program. She didn't see it as a drive for thinness at all. You know, she just wanted to be like well in her body. And as I discuss in the book, as she shrank, as she became Became smaller as a black woman in an all white grad program, she was finally treated well. So, black women are inherently too much, yet not enough, hyper visible, but invisible. So, with her weight loss, she was able to gain more social capital. And also, with the intersections of purity culture, she was able to give up all these things and like feel better about herself. So often in society, you know, it's the giving up the withholding you're doing, basically, I won't say it used to be like God's work and like the withholding and like avoidance of pleasure and avoidance of hedonism is inherently linked with religion. And, you know, she was able to engage in wellness and purity and feel a lot better about herself for doing these things and performing these rituals.
0: I mean, I think that's just one one of the most trickiest parts about restrictive diets or eating disorders is that, you know, when you're at your worst, you're getting positive feedback from mm-hmm. the culture around you. It was also, cause, while it was allowing some social acceptance, she was also foregoing social connection in order to stay mm-hmm. with the restrictive diet. and And right. avoiding, you know, not avoiding her family, but avoiding the family connection that happens when we share food from our traditions and from our families. Yeah,
1: definitely. The increase in social capital but then you know having to go to the gym you know during those you know social times or what would be social times or you know not being able to eat anything at happy hours so maybe skipping it altogether and yeah just pulling away from the family in general and having folks notice that she is bringing her own food to what used to be like a shared meal those are things that people notice and that puts distance between family, between colleagues and friends when all of those things are happening.
0: And you also talk about how what you were recommending wasn't what she wanted to hear.
1: Yeah. That is the hardest part of my work. I cannot solve the societal reasons that folks in general, especially Black women, are called to shrink our bodies. It just is not something that gets solved in a dietitian visit. And even she understood what I was saying and was very interested in the history of the pathologizing and problematizing of Black women's bodies. But even knowing that, she was not open to giving up the increase in social capital. She needed to build connections and networks and the way to doing that as she had seen is to be more palatable in that environment so you know it was a it, it's very sad but also the reality so me just asking her to eat more or saying she has an eating disorder that's not going to matter because society is not going to change
0: yeah you could i I could understand how it would have felt to have you say you need to eat more and exercise less like that is just the opposite message and she's like wait a minute I'm on I'm I'm healthy I'm on my wellness journey journey,
1: I'm healthy (laughs) The healthiest
0: I've ever been
1: yeah this is the best thing I've experienced and also she felt good about herself and I find that way with a lot of people um they want to be perceived as working hard so you know even if and when they're starving you know people can see me losing this weight they know that I'm a hard worker and all the stuff that we assign to weight loss and body stuff it's just wild
0: and you also point out that it's for her it wasn't about being a particular size it was about survival yeah and i was really struck by the line where she says Something about she wants to lose even a little bit more weight to be safe. And I just yeah, thought the word that was her safe.
1: Word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's fit quite well in the storyline that she wanted to lose additional weight to be safe. But it was just a natural thing for her to say.
0: There was just another thing in the introduction that I was really Blown away by. You make a point about how, in your training, Southern food was so vilified in your training as a dietitian. You write Southern food is constantly vilified by dietitians and directly associated with Black people. At the same time, hipsters and gentrifiers are enjoying a renaissance of ribs, pork belly, greens, okra, mac and cheese, chicken and waffles, and cornbread. When the same foods that are pathologized in the context of Blackness are associated with thin, white, affluent people, they become a foodie's gastronomical paradise. Mm-hmm.
1: That I saw living in Oakland. It was pretty quickly gentrifying when I was there. And it was like this whiplash. I'm like, wait a second, you know, in what were black neighborhoods and were becoming white neighborhoods, the same foods that had been like associated negatively in black quote neighborhoods were like still (laughs) fancier in what was becoming white neighborhoods.
0: Yeah, I mean, it just kind of shows how it's really not about the food.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right? It's not, that's a, yeah.
0: So you use the word caste rather than race when you're talking about the effects of white supremacy. And can you explain why you made that choice for this book?
1: Yeah, that, that distinction was laid out really clear for me in Isabel Wilkerson's uh, book cast. And it made more sense here for me to use that one because in the land and world of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs within workplaces and organizations, racism is always this interpersonal situation, right? And I can out learn myself or learn myself out of racism. And that's how I saw things applied. There were Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility. And it was all about these ways that I feel or ways that people feel. And it was not, you know, this is not about how people feel. It's about how the world is organized, everything that is at the foundation of this country. And we can't outthink ourselves. We can't just like change our behavior in order for these things to go away. They're embedded for us.
0: Right. So it Puts it more in the structural realm and and out Yeah, the, the
1: systems you know. and structures.
0: Yeah. My guest is Jessica Wilson. She's a dietitian, consultant, and storyteller, and the author of It's Always Been Ours: Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies, released in February of 2023. We'll be back with more from our conversation after a short break. Stay with us. This is Kate Young. I'm speaking with Jessica Wilson about her book, It's Always Been Ours. One of the things I was surprised to find in her book is a critique of the body positivity movement. I asked her how she would characterize that and what she sees as problematic.
1: I refer to the like fluffy individual solutions to societal problems as like a live love laugh like if only we can think ourselves into a more positive state of mind whether it be bodies or food then we're going to be fine but again it's an individual solution like thin white folks can think themselves into being fine with their bodies perhaps but even if Black folks, trans folks, folks with larger bodies, even if we feel better about ourselves, society is not gonna feel better about our bodies. And in body positivity, the onus is on the individual, one, to do the work, which is possible again for some folks to do and impossible for others. And then two, only addresses again that individual and how they feel, not the societal structures.
0: People in the body positivity world often point to diet culture as the problem, and you take issue with that. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think it goes back to Mia as a great example. She wasn't trying to be thin. She didn't identify as reaching for the thin ideal, it was about that safety. And diet culture is inherently tied to our race-based caste system because in the 1700s and 1800s, people, especially white males, were defining both what health looked like, what a moral and good citizen looked like, and those were thin white folks because what was unhealthy and a poor citizen were black people and they inherently tied fatness with blackness based on one black woman that they had taken and trafficked uh, who was a large black woman, especially the size of her buttocks. And so that inherently just painted blackness as hedonistic, as gluttonous forever. And so when we look at a drive for thinness, say, we can see that as a drive away from blackness and anti blackness. We can position or say like racism is at the root of diet culture, but I reframe it to say that whiteness, white supremacy is the actual driving force behind people wanting to be thin. So it's not actually diet culture. It's not Weight Watchers or WW now or Jenny Craig. It is histories of association with fatness, with gluttony and blackness. And so it's really that connection that's making folks want to shrink our bodies.
0: Yeah, it's a really powerful thing to point out, I think. And it's I know that it's it's a new concept for some people, maybe maybe not for others, but I know that the first time I heard that I was kind of like, oh <laughs> that's what's going on. And of course felt so implicated in it and have participated in it. So you talk in the book about the field of dietetics and eating disorders and about how white centered it is. And you tell a story about the pushback that you received from some of your colleagues when you were trying to talk about Eric Garner and the intersection of fatness and blackness. And could you talk about that, what happened there?
1: Yeah, I was in the Health at Every Size movement, which was a movement focused on weight stigma and the connection or the lack of connection, direct connection between weight and health. So the folks in the Health at Every Size community were really looking at somebody who's physically active. If they're eating fruits and vegetables, then they can be just as healthy as thin people. And the doctors will believe this. And I was in those communities and I was not hearing people talk about how even if people are treated well for being larger, black people, brown people still need to go to the doctor's office. And when we go there, we're not believed for our pain, we're not believed for our symptoms. So how can we connect fatness, blackness, brownness, identity? into this conversation. Can we have a more complex conversation? And I was told, no, like this is only about (laughs) fatness, about folks who weigh more and have a higher BMI. We're not talking about those other issues. That's for something else. And then that was a great moment for me to exit because folks weren't able to have an intersectional conversation about bodies then. I just needed to find my own table and leave that one.
0: You talked about when black people are going to the doctor, they're not, they're not being believed, their symptoms aren't being treated. And I know that that's Mm -hmm. just true for people who are overweight too, that it's just like, well, the only thing we're going to talk about is your weight, no matter what you're presenting with. (laughs) And it just sounds like it's doubly true for people of color. Yeah.
1: So then black women are still going to die during pregnancy or right after pregnancy at far greater rates than both in white women and fat white women. So it is like this double overlapping identity for black folks. And yes, absolutely for fat folks who go to the doctor if their BMI is over either 25 or 30, whatever the problem is will be solved with weight loss. So, you know, and being believed that you have any other pain or any other condition is a requirement is to lose weight first and then we can take you seriously for sure.
0: And just just to clarify, how did you see that issue showing up in the case of Eric Garner?
1: He was policed both for his fatness and his blackness. He was surveilled and over-policed because he was black and then his death was not ruled to be a homicide at the hands of police because he was fat. And if he wasn't fat, then he would have been able to breathe. So yeah, the double-edged sword, I guess, for that one.
0: So I wanted to talk about resilience and how resilience is often celebrated as a virtue and black women are often put on a pedestal or as you put it in the book, seen as special aliens who can heal the world. (laughs) Could you talk about that and what is so harmful about that notion? You know, it sounds so positive.
1: Right, it does sound positive. Whatever I'm given, I can handle it. No one is able to tell me that I'm not good enough or I, you know, didn't work hard enough. But of course, that results in Black women especially working twice as much to earn half as much, but overworking ourselves and just basically killing ourselves to be treated the same way that our peers are treated in the workplace. So my goal is for Black women to just be regular and just be (laughs) in a workplace or in another environment so that we're not overworking ourselves. We know that stress more than our weight is a contributor to our health. And so how are all of these things lining up for us?
0: that section when you were describing wanting to be ordinary yeah especially at work just that such a such a simple desire yeah to just be average in this book you you want to rewrite the narrative about black women's bodies What is involved in that and how do you see that happening?
1: A colleague of mine, Deshaun Harrison, talks about the need to have a new idea because all of the things in the last 500 years were really started based on white supremacist ideas and I would love for a new society to be created for sure but because we are here how can we implement policies how can we start deconstructing caste in our own environments what does that look like but also how can we talk about black women so those are you know ideas that we can start changing today you know is it always about our resilience black girl magic is another more fun spin on black women's resilience So what or how can we talk about Black women that inherently celebrates our joy, lets us just be? And how can we expect that or demand for that to be how Black women are written about? How can we actually care for Black women after, during and after giving birth? What do we need to hear and see in that narrative? And I think those are things that we can change
0: now. Can you say what, you mean in the title when you say it's always been ours?
1: That one was a more broad title to begin with. But then in all of the ways that, you know, my friends have read and talked about this book, how I started writing it, it became far more. Like how much of our stories of our joy is really from our ancestors, from our families, you know, from really our origins as Black folks and how a lot of that has been, taken away so how can we bring that back how can we find joy because our joy has always been ours and has been used and will be used as resistance in the U.S. and western society so how can we center that joy and know that it's always been ours
0: so the the what that's always been ours is joy
1: yes the joy has always been ours
0: Jessica if she would read a passage from the introduction of her book. This book is about
1: bodies and how black women are told to have them. The dominant narratives about all bodies were crafted centuries ago and continue to be told today. From birth, our body sets expectations for those around us. This book makes the case for rewriting those narratives, for putting black women at the center of the narratives rather than having our stories filtered through a white lens. I use the body as a vehicle with which we can conceptualize how these stories have shaped our lives and how we might rewrite them going forward.
0: That's Jessica Wilson reading a passage from her book It's Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies. After a short break, we'll return to our conversation and hear Jessica's response to the new guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics addressing childhood obesity. Stay with us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. My guest is Jessica Wilson, author of It's Always Been Ours, Rewriting the Story of Black Women's Bodies. Let's get back to our conversation, starting with a short quote from the book. The politics and constraints that shape society shape our bodies. White supremacist Mm -hmm. capitalism objectifies and commodifies individuals. It creates social hierarchies and then makes money by selling us the promise of thinness, health, and ultimately wellness.
1: Yes. And I think that is also missed and the like constantly creating problems in order to be able to sell solutions. Of course, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop is like a great example of how they invent products and just The idea that to get close to purity, wellness offers this. Gwyneth is, you know, somebody who has coffee for breakfast and like nothing for lunch, and just how we revere her ability to withhold, to go without, and how pure and righteous that seems. And so we're able to sell a bunch of things that are supposed to make us pure, be it adaptogens in our dusts that we're eating or other things that we're doing to make us feel like we're both good people and righteous and well people.
0: So the American Academy of Pediatrics has issued new guidelines recently in the treatment of overweight and obese children and The guidelines involve intensive health behavior and lifestyle changes. And they say that the most effective treatments include 26 or more hours of face-to-face, family-based, multi-component treatment over a three to 12-month period. And then for kids that are 12 and over, weight loss drugs like medication might be recommended. And for teens that are 13 and over, With severe obesity, bariatric surgery is one of the options. And I wanted to know, given the work that you do and the perspective from which you approach that work, I would love to hear your thoughts about these new guidelines.
1: I appreciate that there have been critiques of body mass index already in popular culture and in science and when i was learning about bmi we initially were told that it was only for population studies it wasn't to be used for the individual at all as i was doing my training you know that evolved into having bmi being used for individuals in a medical setting but like never something that we're supposed to calculate on our own and never ever supposed to be used for children because what we're worried about With children is whether or not they're growing proportional to the growth chart, not like their overall weight. So if kids are growing normally, then they may be higher on the growth chart, but it's not a cause for like drastic alarm. And there were no BMI growth charts like they are now. So that has been like a recent (laughs) development to use BMI for children, something that it was never intended to do, but also It was never really a tool for anything in the first place. So it's complicated and harmful on so many levels. So for basically kids in lifestyle changes, being told to lose weight or having focus on your body is one of the primary predictors of getting eating disorders later in life. So initially, my concerns is that we're just like creating eating disorders for children that we weren't doing beforehand, so there will be more kids and adults with eating disorders, but also something that happened for me personally was that I was in an unsafe neighborhood. I couldn't go play; I was an only child you know I didn't have anyone to play with in the backyard, and once I moved to a safer neighborhood and where I was able to play from seven a m until sundown, my weight just naturally went down. But having been told that I needed to eat less, that continued to stick with me. Like it continued to think that my body was a problem and that I should be celebrating my weight loss as a 10-year-old or whatever, when in fact it was just like something that happened and it should have been able to happen without getting praise because then I forever associated weight loss and that praise was something that was good. And through not great times trying to maintain that praise for my medical providers and family. So in short, I think the guidelines are incredibly harmful. Putting kids on weight loss drugs that have not even been used in children and not even used in adults for a long period of time, we have no idea what the new injectable weight loss drugs are going to do to people in the long term. We know that as soon as people stop taking the injectables, that they regain the weight. What I am seeing initially are studies showing that even if people stay on the medication, they end up regaining the weight after a while. So putting somebody at 13 on an injectable weight loss drug, are we expecting them to be on the drug for 70 more years? <laughs> that, <laughs> that seems wild and inappropriate and unsafe to me. And as kids are growing, we don't want to have them restricting calories. Our metabolisms are still developing at that time. Their risk for malnutrition is higher. And as kids, I have seen, you know, kids who have made do on very few calories, either due to food apartheid, not having food access or dieting very young, having very, very slow metabolisms later in life. And those are things that we can't undo.
0: I want to pause here for a moment and reflect on what she just said. Restricting a child's food intake can lead them to have an extremely slow metabolism later in life. When you have a slow metabolism, it makes it easier to gain weight and more difficult to lose weight. So these early food restriction interventions, which are based on faulty data such as the Body Mass Index, are likely to set people up for ongoing losing battles with weight for the rest of their lives. Okay, back to Jessica Wilson.
1: In short, (laughs) I think it is a recipe for disaster. I also know and we know when it comes to BMI, black and brown kids are often just naturally more muscularly and bone dense. So this, of course, is going to disproportionately impact black and brown kids which of course you know is partially by design for how we already police the bodies of black and brown kids so in essence this is just new guidelines to police chubby kids black and brown kids but also real capacity to cause harm weight loss drugs in addition to those injectables are stimulants And we don't want to be putting kids on stimulants when it's not at all indicated. Those ones lead uh, kids to not eat all day. Like I've worked with kids with ADHD and they just don't eat until like 8 p.m. because they're not hungry and they're kids. (laughs) Like they're running around and not thinking about food. Also, Fentermine is back because of the increased focus on weight loss medications And that one is known to have side effects of heart problems, high blood pressure, and folks that didn't have it beforehand. So, I mean, I have lots of thoughts, as you can tell. Overall, I think it's terrible. And I'm really hoping that we can push back on the guidelines and
0: undo them. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that came to my mind as you were talking is that if the BMI is not a good measure of whether Mm -hmm. a kid is on the road to being an overweight or obese adult, because it can't be if it's not designed for measuring child growth. Yeah, Anyone who's observed a child growing knows that there are stages where you're chubby and then they thin out and then they get chubby again and then they thin out because they're growing in different rates in different ways. Mm. If you're using that and then applying treatment based on that it does seem dangerous to me and harmful
1: and also you know if we're giving these 20 however many hours of consultation to people who don't have food to people who don't have enough money to sustain food all month long to people who don't have safe places to be physically active what are we what are we doing and why are we just making kids and families feel bad it's what it comes down to. So really, why are we addressing the individual when there are so many things that could happen in an environment? And I, it's like business as usual, it's like blame people for things that are completely outside of their control.
0: Yeah, and that it doesn't really, the the guidelines, they acknowledge that this isn't gonna be accessible to everybody, that these these programs don't exist. They're not, and where they do exist, They don't have the capacity to even be there for the families that supposedly need them. Not to mention the families aren't going to be able to show up for Mm -hmm. 26 hours or whatever, you know, to do Mm it. Yeah, it it seems uh, unlikely. Yeah. Did you want to say more about what are the of systemic or structural problems that you feel like they're missing when they focus on the individual.
1: In the medical field today, we're very aware of what contributes to somebody's weight. A lot of it is genetics. A lot of it is environment, environmental pollutants and toxins and hormone disruptors, trauma. We're very aware that adverse childhood events directly impact our weight and our health generally access to food, so many different things that impact our natural body weight, whether or not there's a history of starvation, either while our parent was pregnant with us. But the answer is never to fix those things. It's diet and exercise. <laughs> These are all so many reasons that contribute to your body size, and you know what you need to do? You need to eat kale and quinoa and start jogging because <laughs> like, as a individual solution which is wild to me.
0: One of the things that I know has been discussed about this is that they're talking about how healthcare providers need to take a really aggressive approach and they need to bring up weight at every visit.
1: Yeah.
0: What do you think about how that might affect someone's relationship to the healthcare system going forward? Yeah,
1: I mean, that's totally what happened to me as a kid. And I, again viewed my body as inherently a problem to be solved for decades maybe at least a decade and a half and yeah so many of my black friends especially like just won't go to the doctor we won't go places where we've been told we need to lose weight my fat friends as well just like won't go to the doctor until we're like very sure something is actually, actually wrong. Because if it's not, the solution to whatever it is will just be to lose weight. Like Whatever is bothering you will be better once your BMI is under 25. So yeah, all of these things directly impact our access to healthcare or at least access to healthcare that believes us about our bodies. I see it all the time. I see people be misdiagnosed, not believed, not diagnosed until something is life-threatening. So all of these are outcomes that may have been considered and just shoved away because people don't care about people whose BMI is over 25. I don't know.
0: One of the other things that I noticed in the language was that they're talking about obesity as a disease not as a condition that causes or could lead to disease, but they're calling it a disease itself. And that to me feels Mm -hmm. new, or is that something that's been going on for a while?
1: I think, honestly, the conversation has evolved over time. I feel like in the Biggest Loser Let's Move campaigns, my 600 pound or 500 pound life, All of those, like the language was a lot about like, this will lead to disease. All of these things are bad because you're going to be a bad parent or a bad employee. So if you lose weight, then things are going to be fine. But yes, it wasn't looked at like as a disease in and of itself. But yes, absolutely. That is changing and has changed. So people themselves, regardless of whether or not they have any of the things associated but not causation but not correlation with their weight even if they don't have any of those things like people are still looked as if they're like a ticking time bomb if they're overweight like you may not have anything wrong with you now but just you know give it six months or whatever but you know people again and again are fine but the problem is their weight it's not retreating or diagnosing anything
0: else. You know, I understand how maybe when we started talking about addiction as a disease, it was a way to destigmatize. It was a way to say look, this isn't personal failing, this isn't um, you know, a willpower issue. This is something that was a condition you have and you have to treat it like a medical thing. But it just feels like it, with this it it's different cuz they're saying the shape of your body, <laughs> the size and shape of your body is the disease. Mm-hmm. And that feels like exactly what you started talking about, about the pathologizing mm-hmm. of a body. And if you're doing that to a child, it's.
1: And what's not mentioned is how instrumental pharmaceutical companies have been in that development. So a lot of the, like, sti- like we're putting, you know... Quote obese people, we're having obese people-centered language and in these processes. But it's 1,000% pharmaceutical companies who are then saying, if you're experiencing weight stigma because you're overweight, let us help you. It's a biological thing. Here's a drug, Vyvanse or any of the injectables that will cure your experience with weight stigma. (laughs) Let's sell you this product. 1,000%. It has been the pharmaceutical companies creating a disease so then they can sell the cure.
0: Yeah, and I don't really feel like we have time to go into it, but I just know that the bariatric surgery also has all sorts of complications. And when yeah. you're talking about teenager, you know, a 13 year old, that seems mm. pretty intense intervention.
1: Yeah, we don't. We only talk about it from a weight loss perspective, but when we're actually like removing organs, especially of children's like there are minerals, vitamins and you know, nutrients that are absorbed like all along the way. And that won't happen. And that, you know, is really needed in growth and development. So it's especially concerning for children. But sure, we know, I know many adults who are not able to eat like an entire egg. Like they are on protein shakes for the rest of their lives. And that's the only thing that they're able to eat. Otherwise they will vomit. So these are just things that happen in adults. Why are we going to risk that in children? And yes, there's no research on the impacts of growth, of development of kids.
0: A lot of... The discussion that I've heard around this, and it's in the guidelines as well, is that one of the reasons why this intervention is needed is because of the stigma and how harmful that stigma is for for children, and that kids are getting bullied in school and other places because they're overweight. And so that's one of the reasons we have to address this. And I would just like to hear your response to that.
1: Yeah, that's wild. That's like condoning bullying for kids who are whatever size they are. And then like blaming the kid, first of all, and not at all addressing the bullying and then telling kids that it's their fault for getting bullied and they need to change it. We don't do that for other things. I mean, some religions will try to make gay people straight, but like still in school, bullying is not okay, but why all of a sudden, yes, are we calling it weight stigma-based bullying, and if you're just thin, you know, if we make you thin, you won't experience it, and so that's a reason for us to tell you to diet and exercise. Like, complete disregard for kids is, like, how I think about it. Reinforcing fat phobia and why it's okay to be mean to fat people. And it's not just like the interpersonal stuff, but how does that creep into whether or not people get jobs, how people are viewed as potential partners. When we look at it in the medical research, people are thought to be lazy, non-compliant, people don't get care, people aren't believed. So it's not just, you know, kids and bullying. That, yeah, sets people up early to think that it's okay to, you know, discriminate against chubby kids and larger
0: adults yeah it just feels like there are some i don't know if blind spots is the right word to use but just that it's like yeah. the main thing that's wrong is that you're overweight and so let's just make you not overweight anymore and then these problems will go away
1: yeah absolutely <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: it's it's a, it's a it just feels like a very harmful message to send I really want to thank you for talking with me today. And um, yeah, this is great. Thanks so much for having me. That was Jessica Wilson. She's a dietitian, consultant, and storyteller, and the author of the book, It's Always Been Ours, rewriting the story of Black women's bodies, released in February of 2023. You can find links to her work and to the new Childhood Obesity Guidelines from AAP on our website, eartheats.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Is produced and edited by Kate Young with help from Eobon Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster,
1: Abraham Hill, Samantha Shimmenauer, Peyton Welly, Harvest Public Media, and
0: me, Daniela Richardson. Special thanks this week to Jessica Wilson.
1: Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is John Bailey.